Hello. Hi. So I didn't realize this until I was already finished writing this script, but it's your birthday episode. <gasps> it's Happy my birthday, birthday episode. <laughs> Taurus season. Taurus season has begun. Has begun. Beware. Oh, how exciting for us. Welcome to another episode of True Crime Creepers, where we talk about all the real-life creeps, from serial killers to con artists. I'm Kristen, the true crime fanatic who loves to tell these stories. And I'm Ogap, the true crime newbie who hasn't heard any of them. Well, it's a good thing it's Taurus season, because I got my Taurus <laughs> necklace. You got your Taurus necklace from Ana Luisa, and you also got, what you get? Tell the people. You got, got your mama, mama necklace. necklace. I'm so excited about it. Ana Luisa is our sponsor again for this episode. They craft versatile, high-quality pieces at very affordable prices, starting at just $39. Do you know what's coming up, too, MoGab? Mama's Day for my mama's necklace. Mother's Day. And right now, Ana Luisa has a buy one, get one 40% off sale. One for you, one for her. Get matching. You can get your mama that mama necklace. <laughs> oh my gosh, I should. Louise walking around a mama necklace. <laughs> Done. Ana Luisa sent us some more jewelry. I love them so much. I got three earrings. I've got the Hannah marble earrings. Ooh. These things are gorgeous. I'm obsessed with them. They are like white, but they have this like blue marbling on them. <gasps> oh, Do you I, see those? Yeah, I asked for those. Oh, well, I got They're them. They're so cute. They look like little like a uh, like china, like almost like a china plate. They do. Situation. They look like little Yeah, they look like little china plates. They're so cute. They are really versatile. They go with so many of my outfits. I loved wearing them. I felt really Look, like, it's basically all I wear at this point. But they're also super light, which I love. They're yeah. not like heavy because they, they were big and I was a little worried about them when I got them in because they're like bigger than Your I usually baby wear. baby ears. Yeah, because my ears hurt sometimes, but they were really light. I loved wearing them. Forgot I even had them on. I also got some gold studs that I loved and some gold hoops that I love. So check out AnnaLuisa.com slash creepers. creepers. <laughs> That's A-N-A-L-U-I-S-A dot com slash creepers for buy one, get one 40% off. Yeah, girl. One for you, one for me. (laughs) A-N-A-L-U-I-S-A dot com slash creepers. All right. And thanks, Ana Luisa, for sponsoring this episode again. And for sponsoring like all my outfits, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. All right. You remember last week when you couldn't remember that you just had to say your name? <laughs> <laughs> Something tells me that got left in, didn't it? <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, it depends. Garrett might decide to take it out, but <laughs> I left it in when I'm, I sent it to him. <laughs> it's like I'm so tired all the time. You know what I need? What? Alpha brain. <laughs> just kidding. Athletic it's not alpha brain. It's colchicine. <laughs> colchicine. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Hey, we should talk about our Patreon. You know, I'm not really feeling it tonight. I'm just kidding. I'm obsessed with it. Here's why. (laughs) Because it's going really well and you should check it out. And there's a lot of really great content over there. We have bonus episodes every month. 
typically so far based off a movie, right? Yeah, mostly. Mm-hmm. And then mini creeps, which are shorter episodes that come out like twice a month, and they're about <laughs> honestly, it's ridiculous. Everything. Like, <laughs> it's, it's really something. We've got over twenty there. mini. We just dropped our twentieth mini creep last week. How do you feel about one of them having to be you watching Major Pain? <laughs> Only if you watch Clueless. That was the I know. deal. I will. Yeah. Okay. I can't wait. Okay, I can't. Yeah, me either. People are really going to be hollering about that. We got 20 mini creeps. That is at the $7 level. At the $7 level, you also get a card with our autographs and a sticker. You go up one more. That's the $10 level. And up there, you can get 20% off merch and more perks to come at that level. So uh, if you would like to sign up and support the show, that is patreon.com slash Creepers. But we are just happy to have you here for this very free episode for you. <laughs> you should sign up for it for my birthday. That could be a birthday gift to me. All those people out there that keep saying, oh, MoGab, you know what? I've been meaning to do that. It's perfect it's time. It's money where your mouth is. Perfect time for MoGab's birthday. And then if you want to wait a week, it's my birthday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who do you love more? Who do you love more? Let's see who can get the most patrons for their birthday. Oh, don't. I will make so many Gmail accounts. I'm just kidding. can't afford that. Uh, all right. This episode is sponsored by Pros. Supporting our sponsors really helps support the show. A couple of years ago, I decided it was probably time I figure out some kind of skincare routine. But the problem was, and has always been, too many options. I don't know exactly what I need or what's best for me and my skin. So thus far, my solution has been to just buy a skincare line off the shelf and hope it helps. But that's all about to change when my custom skincare from Pros comes in. Each and every bottle of Pros custom hair and skincare is made to order and personalized with a unique blend of naturally powerful and proven effective ingredients to meet your needs. In fact, in a third-party, double-blind, dermatologist-supervised, controlled clinical study, aka the gold standard in research studies, pros proved that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives. Try it for yourself and get your healthiest hair in 30 days or get your money back. Pros is so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering our listeners an exclusive trial offer so that you can see the difference custom care can make. That's 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash creepers. That's P-R-O-S E dot com slash creepers for your free consultation and 50% off your one-of-a-kind formulas. Pros.com slash creepers. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around stressors, big and small. For me, this comes in the form of work, too many deadlines, relationships with people, irrational fears of the future. When we keep them bottled up, it can really start to affect us negatively, mentally and physically. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. My therapist has really been helping me work on coping skills for how to handle my stress, how to handle day-to-day -day tasks that I struggle with, as well as working on communicating and improving personal relationships and just talking through problems with somebody who understands. It's something I wish I'd started ages ago. But finding a therapist is so overwhelming. Are they taking new patients? Are they taking insurance? And once you find one that says yes to both of those, are they a good fit? If not, you have to start the process all over again. 
If they are a good fit, you've got to figure out some way to fit appointments into your busy schedule. But BetterHelp takes away all of those barriers, and I'm so thankful. I love my therapist. I really feel like they took my questionnaire that I filled out when I signed up and really used it to match me to the perfect person. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com creepers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot creepers. I think that's everything that I needed to say before God, we dive yeah, in. this administrative work. I mean, I better be getting paid hourly. Okay. I'm sorry, hourly. you're on a you're on a percentage basis. <laughs> yeah, this I'm on a fixed income, literally. All right. Thank you so much to Renee for recommending this case. Oh, so very long ago. It's been a while. Sorry about that. But uh I'm <laughs> I'm actually a little annoyed at myself that I waited so long to look into it because I loved this case. Also to an episode of Dateline that I could only find through their podcast, so I listened to the episode, and an episode of See No Evil, and approximately one billion articles that I've already sent to you. (laughs) I loved looking into this case, but... Oh, no. It was really because I feel like through her, like, friends and family, I felt like I really got to know this girl, and I would have just, like, loved her. So this is the story of the murder of Mickey Shunick. I already love her. Her name's Mickey. No, and her real name's Michaela, but she went by Mickey. This is 2012 in Lafayette, Louisiana. Oh. 21-year-old Michaela Shunick, who went by Mickey. I love that place. (laughs) She was a senior at the University of Louisiana. She was about to graduate with her degree in anthropology, and she was looking forward to just everything that life was going to offer her afterwards. On Friday, May 18th, she went with a friend to this cute bar called Artmosphere to watch some live music. Yeah. So school's already out May 18th. Well, it said she was about to graduate, so I don't think she'd quite graduated yet, but that does seem late. So yeah, I'm not sure. Like maybe the ceremony hasn't happened yet. Yeah, maybe so. She went with a friend to this cute bar called Artmosphere to watch some live music. She loved live music. She loved dancing. I'm not sure what kind of music was playing this, this night, but I know she is. Es- Ooh, I hope it's Zydeco. <laughs> well, I know she especially loved dancing to dubstep and techno. Okay, so no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just picturing like a low country boil. Like there's just, you know, I don't know. This is three days before her 22nd birthday. After the show, she went over to her best friend, Bretley Wilson's house for a while. (gasps) (laughs) Bretley. And then at around 1.45 in the morning, she headed home on her black and gold Schwinn bicycle with sparkly gold handlebars. Shut up. Yes. She is you. (laughs) I love her. Bretley lived about four miles away from Mickey, but it wasn't unusual for Mickey to just take her bike everywhere she could. Lafayette's a small town. You could get almost anywhere on a bike within 30 minutes. And Mickey loved riding her bike. She'd even been training to bike across America for this organization called Bike and Build, which is a service organization that raises awareness about affordable housing issues. Mickey also took her bike almost everywhere she went because her current car had no air conditioning. And it was summer in Louisiana. So (laughs) yeah, you get more of a breeze on the bike. Exactly. 
Mickey lived with her parents, Tom and Nancy, and her younger brother, Zach. I believe her older sister, Charlene, who went by Charlie, had moved out at this point, but she was still living nearby. In fact, when I first saw Charlie, it was her speaking in this video from a website the family ran. I thought her and Mickey were twins. They look so much alike. But it's probably mostly the hair. They both have this like bright, blonde, thick, super curly hair, like Taylor Swift and the teardrops on my guitar video. Yeah. Just like really curly blonde hair. It's like little ringlets. Yes. It's very noticeable is not the word I want to use. It's like it stands out, you know. Yeah. Very distinct. Distinct. Yes. The next morning, Saturday, May 19th, her younger brother, Zach, was graduating from high school. The graduation was at 10 a.m., and so the family was all up early and scrambling around in a rush to get ready and leave for the ceremony. Nancy, Mickey's mom, she went to check on Mickey and make sure she was up and getting ready, and that's when she realized that she wasn't home. (gasps) This was very unlike Mickey. If she said she was going to be somewhere, she was there. Her sister Charlie called her a few times, and the phone just kept going straight to voicemail. And Charlie was kind of getting annoyed, like, pick up your phone. Where are you? We have to go. Yeah. She knew Mickey had gone out with friends the night before, and she figured she just crashed at one of their houses. She sent her a text that was basically like, hey, dummy, wake up and get home so we can go to Zach's graduation. But something about it felt wrong. By the time they needed to leave for the graduation, Mickey still hadn't turned up. So the family headed to the ceremony without her, and they were hopeful that Mickey would meet them there but she never showed up. After the graduation, they headed straight home, hoping Mickey would be waiting at the house for them. Maybe she just forgot about the graduation, but she wasn't there, and she still wasn't answering her phone. Mickey was responsible. She kept up with her commitments. It was not like her. Something was definitely wrong. So her mom, Nancy, and her sister, Charlie, they get on the phone. They start calling around to all of Mickey's friends. They're trying to find out if anyone has seen her that day or heard from her at all. Charlie got a hold of one of Mickey's friends who said she'd called Mickey the night before at around 1.30 in the morning and that she'd been with her friend Brettley. So she suggested calling Brettley to see if she slept over or if she was still there. So Charlie called Brettley and he told her that Mickey had come over to his house after the bar, but that she'd left around 1.40 to go home. Oh, Brettley is a man. Brettley is a man. Yes. He said that Mickey was aware of the time and that she'd said she needed to get home because of Zach's graduation the next morning. The ride home should have taken less than 30 minutes. Where was she? So wait, she she left Bretley's house on her bike. Yep. At night, though. Yeah, 1.40 in the morning. 1.40 in the morning, okay. Yep. This is when Charlie started to panic. Something was definitely wrong. She got off the phone with Bretley and called 911 to report Mickey missing but she was told that they needed to call around to hospitals. So they call around to all the hospitals that Mickey could possibly have been taken to, and there was nobody matching her description. Nobody there that maybe had amnesia or like a head trauma or anything. The whole family started tracing on foot the most likely route that Mickey would have taken. They're checking ditches, they're checking bushes, checking over fences, but there was no trace of Mickey or her bike. They went back to the house and called police again, this time telling them they needed their help in finding Mickey. Oof. I know. I'm having major, like, I I know everyone's had this experience, like, having to call around to find someone. Yeah, but I've always found them, you know? Yeah, yeah. 
An officer was sent out who took Mickey's description down while Detective Stephen Bajot was assigned to lead the search for Mickey. It was really troubling to Detective Bajat that Mickey had just not shown up to her brother's graduation and that it was very out of character for her to miss something like this. He asked the family if there was anyone in Mickey's life with any motive to hurt her, but they couldn't think of anyone. Everyone that knew her liked her. Yeah. Detectives were also really concerned about the fact that her bicycle didn't seem to be anywhere she would have disappeared from. He said if it was some kind of abduction, most people would just snatch and go and not concern themselves with the bicycle. So they started the investigation by talking to Brettley. He was the last person to see her, and since he was a guy, they were concerned maybe this is a domestic issue. Not Brettley. I just want to like him. <laughs> I imagine him having a little swoop, you know, the southern swoop. Uh, I think he did with some glasses. A little uh, swoop and some glasses. Yeah. But Mickey and Brettley's relationship was completely platonic. There had never been anything romantic between them. They were just good friends. Brettley emphatically denied having anything to do with Mickey's disappearance, but he was able to give them a timeline of their events that night. He told police that he and Mickey had been at Artmosphere until around 1230, and then they rode their bikes back to his house. A little after 1 a.m., they got in Brettley's car to grab some late-night Taco Bell down the street. Oh. And they took yes. the food back to his house. And like he told Mickey's family, she left around 1.40 on her bike saying that she was headed home. And that was the last time he'd seen her. Brettley, why didn't you give her a ride, though? Like, I'm not judging, but like. I think it's because it's like, first of all, you should be safe riding your bike whenever you want to ride your bike, you know? Yeah. And and she was always on her bike. This was not unusual. They rode their bikes together to Artmosphere, you know? I mean, they these are just bike riders. Yeah, you're right. I hate that. Like, when people are like, why don't you carry pepper spray? Like, why don't men just not? Right. (laughs) No, that's fine. You can just stop there. Why don't men just not? (laughs) Yeah, why don't men? (laughs) Or just peep, like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I also feel like I feel, sound like such a man hater on these episodes, but it's just that a lot of men are raping and murdering a lot of women. <laughs> yes, for the record, like I do we love do the men not in my life. Hate men, I don't. I don't. All of them. <laughs> just the ones we talk that. about here. <laughs> yeah, right. and I hate the women that we talk about here that aren't the victim too. Yes, or the people of the week, or so. the people of the week, and. There are going to be several peeps of the week in this episode. Oh, good. Yes. I could use it. Yes. Meanwhile, word starts to spread around Lafayette that Mickey has gone missing. It's a town of about 120,000 people, and most of them knew at least one of the Shunics or knew someone who knew them. A group of about 12 of Mickey's friends met up at Brettley's house and just started retracing her most likely route by foot. Mickey's family and friends were incredibly motivated by their love for her and their hope that they would bring her home safe. So they started going out with their bikes, putting up missing flyers all over town. Later, more and more community members start showing up wanting to help in the search. Charlie Mm. was able to deal with the stress of her sister missing by stepping up and really taking charge of the search. She got the story out to local television stations. She spread it on social media. National News picked it up. And with the help of family and friends, the story went international on Facebook and Twitter. Brettley's house on Ryan Street became like the de facto search party headquarters. Community members started dropping off donations. 
By the next day, so much water had been donated for volunteers that there was a stack like six feet tall of just water bottles. Churches, businesses, and other charity organizations donated massive amounts so that searches could be organized from sunrise to sunset. Thousands of volunteers poured in to put their daily lives on hold and help search for Mickey. They got maps of Lafayette and the surrounding areas printed, laminated, color-coded. Charlie had sectioned off the city into quadrants, and they went to work. Monday, May 21st, would have been Mickey's 22nd birthday. But now she's been missing for two days, and instead of celebrating her birthday with her, a candlelight vigil is held, and a $25,000 reward for information leading to her whereabouts was announced. Lafayette police set up a tip line staffed by volunteers. They got a private investigator on the case, and major nationwide media coverage of the case begins. Volunteers from the community continued to pour in to help with the search. Her family is distraught. Her mom, Nancy, and her sister, Charlie, are having a really difficult time dealing with Mickey's disappearance, but they're doing everything they can to find Mickey. Her father, Tom, is just trying to keep as busy as possible, and he just throws himself into the search as well. Are they just, like, searching everywhere, like, like everywhere, or just, like, where between Bretley's house and... Yeah, so I think they searched that area pretty thoroughly, every possible way she would have taken, and now they're just kind of, you know, moving out into the whole town. But on Tuesday, Mm -hmm. May 22nd, military personnel led volunteers on two organized foot searches, and then on Wednesday, May 23rd, guess who shows up? Texas EquiSearch. (gasps) EquiSearch. Yeah, Texas EquiSearch showed up. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Love them. Yes. And they transformed the search operation into a well-oiled machine. They moved the volunteer headquarters from Bretley's house on Ryan Street over to a church on the university campus. And I know you know about Texas EquiSearch because you're the one that actually told me about about them. Yes. But for those who don't, this is a search and recovery organization that was founded in Galveston, Texas in August of 2000 by a man named Tim Miller in honor of his daughter, Laura Miller, who was abducted and murdered in 1984. And through the last 20 years, they have returned 400 missing people safely to their families and recovered the remains of 238. And they're 20 minutes down the road from me, which I think is super cool. They're in Dickinson. They're little headquarters. And they're doing it all on horses. And they do all kinds of searches. They do foot searches, underwater searches, air searches. They go all over the country. They even go worldwide. But they are most well known for their horse and rider search teams. Hence the name. They don't take the horses underwater. No, they do not. They're like separate. No, as are the foot searches (laughs) and the air searches. And this is so fitting because Mickey loved horses. She loved all kinds of animals, actually. She even had a pet pig named Franzia. (gasps) I know. (laughs) What? Yes, girl. (laughs) But she'd been taking riding lessons at Willow Oaks Equestrian Center in Lafayette since she was seven years old. And as she grew up, she'd started training horses there. At the time of her disappearance, she was a teacher at Willow Oaks, where she taught younger girls how to ride horses. So Hmm. I just thought it was really fitting. Charlie said that she thought after college, Mickey might work to open her own riding school. She loved it so much. So I thought it was fitting that EquiSearch came out, yeah. 
I really love the uh, like the horse therapy. There's like a horse therapy farm. Not, I mean, obviously there's a ton of horse farms here in mm-hmm. Kentucky, but I know sometimes they take like some of the race horses, and then once they retire, do like a lot of like, horse like therapy stuff, which is really cool. Yeah, that is really cool. Tim Miller, the founder of EquiSearch, he said they were hoping for the best, but that they don't sugarcoat anything and that it did not look good at all. But he said they believe in miracles. Later, volunteers for Texas EquiSearch said they couldn't believe the outpouring of support from the community for Mickey. The amount of people that came out devoted so much time, so much resources, people who had never even met Mickey. They said it was like nothing they'd ever seen before and something they'd never forget. Her family and friends, with the help of the community, they were responsible for keeping the story fresh, keeping it in the public eye. Everyone wanted to find her, and everyone wanted to find out who or what was responsible for her disappearance. Mickey's mom, Nancy, said that it took every ounce of strength for her to not just curl up in a little ball and quit. She and Tom would keep it together in public and while they were working with the search teams, but when they go home at the end of the day, they'd just fall apart. Charlie, her sister, she had a theory that a drunk driver hit her and then got scared and took her with him because he didn't know what to do with her and he was holding her. And through tears, she made pleas on the news that if someone had made a mistake and was holding her, that it was okay, that they wouldn't say anything. Just call the tip line, drop her off anywhere, and we'll come out and find her. Meanwhile, police are on a new line of inquiry. Security footage. They went by Artmosphere and they found surveillance cameras that covered the bar and seating areas, and they were hoping it might show something that was off in Bretley's story, something that could add to him as a suspect. But instead, it showed them arriving exactly when he said they were there, and it looked like they were just having a good time the whole night. They left at the time Bretley said they left, and they didn't look drunk. They'd only gotten a couple of drinks from the bar. They were not holding hands when they left. They also didn't see anyone from the bar following them. So investigators then went to the next place they knew they went, to Taco Bell. (laughs) Their Taco Bell receipt? Better keep those receipts. (laughs) Yeah, Bradley had said he'd gone there after Artmosphere. They were able to get surveillance footage from there that was like from the inside of the restaurant to the drive-thru window. And all they could see was Bradley in the front seat of the car. They could vaguely make out that there was someone in the passenger seat but they couldn't be sure it was Mickey. And investigators were wondering if maybe Bretley had an accomplice that was involved in hurting Mickey. Oh, no. Do we think it's Bretley? Do we think it's Bretley? I mean, who? They're not. They haven't had anything to rule him out yet. So I think they're just kind of not crossing him off their list at this point. <sighs> what about the endorphins from Taco Bell? No one eats a Mexican pizza and murders somebody. Well, I'm sorry to say nobody eats a Mexican pizza at all anymore, MoGab. They took it off the menu. Thanks for bringing it up. But it's coming back. (laughs) What? In June. It's coming back in June. Oh, they heard the people. They heard the cries. They heard the people. (laughs) God, all the good Mexican pizza. (laughs) That's why it's on my mind, because I just read about it coming back. Oh, oh. I'll get that release date for you. Please hold. <laughs> because the peeps and creeps also are clamoring. <laughs> Clam- clamoring. Why would they do that? It takes the same four ingredients as all of their Wait. other I know. 
all of their other. And what did they replace it with? You know. Right. No, I lied. Not June. May 19th. One Ooh, month from today. One month from well, today. That well, we're that we're recording. Today. We're recording on April 19th, yes. Ugh, you're welcome, everybody. Anyways, <laughs> back to the real back to the real crime, which is not Taco Bell getting rid of Mexican pizza. As police canvassed the area, they started looking for any other surveillance cameras that could corroborate anything about Brettley's story. Mickey's sister Charlie and several others started posting on social media asking people in the area for any private camera footage. And this is like right around when ring doorbells are starting. So they actually get about 300 videos coming in from businesses and private residences. I just today was walking the dog and got a little annoyed by the amount of ring doorbells. And I'm like, you know what? Good. Good on you, people. Yeah, absolutely. If you would submit your stuff. Absolutely. I would uh, like to get a ring doorbell. I just don't like that it whistles. It whistles at me when I walk by. And it, I don't need your doorbell cat calling uh, me. That's a setting. Yeah. Well, they should turn it off. Yeah, they okay. should. That's, yeah. Whoever you are. <laughs> Blame that like resident. It. Not, uh, did you know that ring? <laughs> did you know that ring was on Shark Tank and all of them turned it down? No. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Barbara Corcoran says it's her biggest regret is turning down. They, it wasn't called ring at the time, but he was yeah. like, the fir- I remember watching it and I was like, oh, that's so cool. I lived with my mom. So I was like, I don't have a house to put this on, but that's really cool. And I think at the time, it was like you kind of had to own the home to be able to do it because you had to, like, mm-hmm. change the door. Like, it, yeah. you know? It was, yeah. So renters couldn't use it. And then nobody was interested in his tech technological. They're like, what would people even use this for? I mean, it's so ridiculous. <laughs> I know. And now we're like, everything's on Zoom, you know. Okay, back to the real back to my real question. Oh, is yeah. Brettley a family friend or is he just friends with I think he's White just friends family. with Mickey. He's just friends with Mickey. Like they're really, really good friends. Okay. And so I don't know how well he knew her family. I'm not sure. I got the impression that they knew of him, like they knew who he was, because they mm-hmm. this seems like a very close knit family that kind of knew each other's friends or at least who they yeah. were, but yeah, I'm not sure. So detectives start pouring through all these camera footage until they finally spot a girl riding a bicycle on one of the videos. But because it's nighttime, the picture's not very clear. You can barely make it out. Five days into the investigation, they found a bank on Mickey's route that had four cameras facing the street on different sides that were all running 24-7. They're infrared cameras, so much better pictures. They Mm. find her on there. They switch to the another camera and find her again. They pick her up again on the next camera. So they're kind of able to follow her around this building. They brought her dad and her sister in to see if they could confirm whether or not it was Mickey. And they are certain. They know it's her. Her blonde curly hair is unmistakable. And that meant that Brettley was no longer a suspect in her disappearance. She had left his house and something happened to her after. And with Brettley crossed off the list, that left the detectives with no suspects and no leads. And so the only thing they can do from here is just find more cameras that may have picked up Mickey farther along her route, see how far they can trace her along her route. So they go down from the bank and they get a surveillance camera at a Circle K that it was at at this big intersection. Unfortunately, this camera records one frame (laughs) per second which isn't great for their purposes, but they do get a glimpse of a flashing light on a bike, and they're pretty sure that it's her. So they go to the city hall across the street, and they scroll through the footage from that same time, 
And this time you can see her clearly riding her bike down the street. God, this is so, I mean, this is sad, but this like piecing together which places have cameras and going in order is so fun. I should have been a detective. <laughs> yeah, but then you're you're forgetting about the like endless scrolling through footage. Yeah. Like I, I think I'd once have you an intern. went to- <laughs> Call me in when it gets good. The department cannot fund your intern. Okay. <laughs> I'll be like Call me when it gets good. Who am I kidding? I've watched like seven movies. I'm not about to watch just a ton of footage. No, you're not. Detectives have started to wonder if maybe Mickey wasn't intending to go home that night. Maybe she lied to Brettley and she'd made plans to go somewhere else and she just didn't want to tell anybody. But all of these surveillance cameras confirmed that Mickey was on her way home. They got her on camera from an attorney's office down the street and then to the next business and the next, each one showing her riding farther and farther down the street. Detectives have plotted almost a mile of Mickey's ride, just watching her go. There's about a quarter mile on her route where there are no businesses with cameras. They had her on the last camera at 1.47 a.m. riding her bike on Versailles Boulevard, and then at 1.48, she's riding her bike on St. Landry Street. The next camera was at an event center called Blackham Coliseum that had video surveillance outside, and they watched the video expecting her to ride past somewhere between 148 and 149, but she never shows up on that camera. Oh, so it's on those, were those other two streets, residential, Versailles, and St. It's just this quarter mile where there's just nothing, no businesses, Mm. no, I think it's just a field. I I looked it up on Google Maps, and it was hard for me to tell exactly where they were talking about. But I, if, if it's the stretch of road I was looking for, it's just like a field. There's nothing there mm. on, on your way to the Coliseum. Yeah. Oh, it's so eerie. Like, I even know. if it's your hometown, I don't want to ride my bag at 1.40 in the morning. No, I know. Like, for, I mean, it was what, like a 15-minute, four miles? I mean, on a bike, that's like... Yeah, it's about 20 minutes. It shouldn't have taken her longer than 20 minutes to get home. Yeah. Yeah. Still. Somewhere in that quarter-mile area... Something terrible happened to Mickey. So they got officers and search volunteers on foot to look for anything in that quarter mile stretch. Bike parts, car parts, skid marks. They're thinking maybe a hit and run, maybe a drunk driver. Mm. But they didn't find any debris or anything from the bike. And this was concerning because if it had been a hit and run or something like that, why would the perpetrator have taken her bike with him? It must have been something more than that. I don't know. Wouldn't you take the bike because, like, there could be evidence on it? Yeah, I guess they just weren't thinking that, like, somebody in a panic state, that that's what they would do. But, yeah, Yeah. I I agree. And I guess it would also depend on what vehicle it is, you know, what kind of vehicle it is driving. It's Louisiana. It's, It's you know, it's a 350 (laughs) coming. So they go back to the surveillance footage of St. Landry Street where Mickey disappeared from the last time she appears on camera. And around the time of her disappearance, and this is like at that intersection with like the Circle K is on one side and the City Hall is on the other side. And Mickey's like riding past like in between them down the street. Mm -hmm. Around the time of her disappearance, there were only three other vehicles on the road that they saw on camera. It was this side street at two in the morning, so luckily traffic was light. Detectives were able to identify two of the cars. One was an employee doing work on that side street, and the other one was someone passing through town that they were able to eliminate, I guess. But the third vehicle was unidentifiable. 
all they could tell was that it was a white Chevy pickup truck. And if you've ever entered this part of the country, calling a white Chevy pickup a dime a dozen would be putting it lightly. They're everywhere. And this particular one passed by City Hall four seconds after Mickey rode by. Detective Bajat contacted a local Chevy dealership, and he was able to find out that it was a Chevy Z71. They were able to identify the the make and model. And I want to drive. No matter what, they had to find this person. At the very least, this person could be the last person to see Mickey. They start pouring through CCTV footage from that area around that time, searching for other cameras that might have caught the truck, and they find it. The truck was driving past City Hall towards the Circle K. It was a four-lane highway, and the truck is in the middle lane, meaning that he's intending to go straight past the Circle K. But suddenly, when he gets to the intersection right before the Circle K, right after Mickey drives by going down the side street, he changes his mind, and he decides to make a right-hand turn in the same direction that Mickey was riding. Detective Bajat thought for sure this white truck is stalking her. Hmm. So they go to the last video of Mickey before they lost her, and they see the truck drive by in front of her. And Detective Bajat thinks that he drove ahead and he found an area that was dark and where there were no witnesses around, and he waited for her. The truck also disappeared off CCTV footage at the same time. It never appeared on that footage at the stadium yeah. like it would have if it was just innocently driving it's by. Going. 30 miles away, there's this large swamp called Whiskey Bay on the Atchafalaya River. On Saturday, May 26th, a week after Mickey was reported missing, a couple of fishermen were out there and they spotted a handlebar of a bicycle poking up through the water and they went to go check it out. Mm. The bike had gotten stuck on the shoreline and so it hadn't made it out with the current. And the fishermen took the bike. They intended to use it for scrap. But then they saw some news about Mickey and they called the police, thinking it was possible that the bike was hers. When crime scene personnel examined the bike, they found that the rim of the back tire was damaged and that the damage was consistent with being struck by a truck. Huh. Police were able to unlock the padlock on the bike using Mickey's lock combination, but just to be sure that it was her bike, they had her dad Tom and her sister Charlie come down to look at it. Wait, it was locked to what? I think she had like a padlock around it. You know how you Just like- Just around. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I thought like it was attached to something. No, uh-uh. They were able to positively identify the bike as Mickey's, and they just lost it. You know, obviously Mickey hadn't ridden her bike 30 miles down I-10 and dumped her own bike over the bridge into the water herself. Finding the bike like this definitely pointed to something terrible. But they were still holding out hope that whoever had done this was holding on to Mickey for whatever reason. Nancy said maybe the person had realized what a treasure she is, what a gem, what a jewel. And they're holding on to her and she was going to get her back. She said you couldn't spend more than a couple of minutes with her and not fall in love. And she hoped that whoever had done this had seen that in Mickey and was keeping her and she'd get her back. Detective Bajat was not so hopeful. He knew the odds were there that this was not going to be a positive outcome and that most likely she was already dead. But that didn't stop them from continuing to look for her. 
They sent a dive team down to thoroughly search the water where Mickey's bike was found, thinking she might be there as well. And other searches led by Texas EquiSearch looked for her on foot in the brush surrounding the water, but she wasn't there. This continued to give her family hope. Charlie said that without evidence that Mickey herself had been hurt, they just weren't going to allow themselves to think that she could be gone. Another week went by, and the searches started to dwindle. By June 1st, Texas EquiSearch suspended their operations. Organized volunteer searches continued for like another week after that. And then it was just a core group of civilian volunteers that would conduct periodic foot searches. But on June 14th, almost a month after Mickey went missing, a huge break in the case came when Lafayette police got a call from police in Texas. They'd found a truck, a white Chevy Z71, that had been abandoned and burned in San Jacinto County, which is just north of Houston. The doors had been left open on the passenger side of the truck, which, according to fire marshals, would have accelerated the fire inside of the truck. But the Mm. real smart guy who decided to set the truck on fire, probably to destroy any evidence found inside, he left the license plates on the truck. Oh, no. (laughs) So detectives were able to plug that license plate into traffic cameras in the area, which they can do this (laughs) and just find you wherever you are. So just, you know, and they found the truck in Lafayette on camera close to the time of Mickey's murder, meaning that this truck found in north of Houston is more than likely the truck that they had been looking for in Lafayette. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And and also just, I mean, well, I I'm sure this maybe isn't true, but I just feel like when you're going through Houston, there's like triple the amount of those cameras. <laughs> I'm just like, <laughs> right. there's just so, there's yeah. so many. I mean, there's no... Right. I don't know. Also, why do people think like setting a car on fire is the best way to destroy it? I feel like that just draws so much attention. Like the amount of flames that are coming from a full-sized truck on fire. Because I guess they're not trying to hide the truck. They're trying to like destroy any DNA evidence, any blood, any hairs, any... But like you leave the license plate on there and then aren't they calling you like, excuse me, Miss Mogab, can you tell me why your (laughs) truck was on literal fire in a parking lot? Well, you know, there is an explanation for all that. Don't worry, of course. They were able to find traffic cam footage from eight hours before the murder of the truck driving down the freeway. And in the bed of the truck was this four by four post sticking out of the top corner of the bed, as well as a foam white ice chest in the middle of the back of the bed. And Detective Bajot had seen those items before. In the last camera image seen of Mickey, when the truck drives by, You can see a 4x4 post sticking out of the bed and a white square object in the middle of the bed. This is Hmm. definitely the truck, and now they are one step closer to finding the driver. Detectives ran the plates and traced them to an address in Lafayette that was the residence of a man named Brandon Scott Laverne, who was a 33-year-old offshore worker and a registered sex offender. Oh, no. In 1999, he'd broken into a woman's house, tied her up, and forced her to perform a sex act on him. He was arrested in 2000 and sentenced to 10 years, but he'd been released two years early in 2008. And this is something I didn't know, because in Texas, I don't think we do this. 
But in Louisiana, on their driver's license, just below their picture, in giant red letters, it says sex offender. Shut up. Yes. I looked it up. I love that. <laughs> I mean, I hate I hate it. But... You hate that sex offenders exist. But if they have to exist, yes. they might as well have sex offenders straight across. I looked it up, and apparently there are nine states that require some kind of special designation on their IDs. In Delaware, they just have to put the letter Y on their ID. But in Florida, people convicted of certain felony sex crimes have to have sexual predator spelled out on their ID. <laughs> Predators got a whole. Yeah. But it's I actually don't like that they use the word predator because it's definitely like a, you know, a power like predatory animals are like, you know, at the apex of the pyramid. No. Like yeah. That. No, I, I agree. There are a lot of problems with the word predator. But I do like that they put on their – but it is a lot smaller than this Louisiana one. This was like giant red letters right under their picture. Sex. I wonder, one, I wonder why the letter Y. Yeah, I don't know. And I don't know where this was. Did I tell you about – I forget the real name of them, but people call them party plates. Did we talk about this? Uh Uh-uh. I can't – I don't think it's in Columbus because I never saw them, but maybe it's a state near Columbus. But I learned about them when I moved, or maybe it is in Columbus. That if you have a DUI, your license plates are yellow. Oh. Like your. And they call them party call plates? Them. <laughs> if you have restricted driving privileges due to a DUI, they put them on. I just think that's so interesting. Yeah. So anyway, people have traced the white truck to registered sex offender Brandon Laverne. And they discover several tips and incident reports involving Laverne, including an incident report from May 19th. So this is like, it was Friday night that Mickey went out, Saturday morning that she went missing. That day, May 19th, is that Saturday, when he showed up at Oshner Hospital in New Orleans seeking treatment for multiple stab wounds. Mickey got a knife? He had stab wounds. He told police that he'd been in New Orleans visiting a friend when his GPS stopped working. And he'd been in an unfamiliar area, so he just stopped at a gas station for directions. And as he got out of his truck, he said a white male with gold teeth and a neck tattoo just attacked him out of the blue. He'd been stabbed multiple times in the chest, back, hand, and neck, and then had his wallet stolen, which contained about 40 bucks. 40 bucks? Get out of here. Deputies taking the report asked him if he could give them any landmarks, street signs, buildings, anything that would have that would tell them where this attack took place. But Laverne couldn't recall anything. His injuries weren't life threatening. So he'd been released from the hospital. One place said a few hours later, one place said the next day. So they like got him stitches and then. Yeah. Now, police in Lafayette might not have made the connection to the stab victim in New Orleans if not for Laverne's fiance, Barbara, and her family. Her father, John Falk, had recently discovered that his daughter's future husband was a registered sex offender, something that I'm sure did not make him happy. Yeah, I don't think that comes up at like dinner with the parents. No, he'd seen the news reports about police looking for the white truck. He knew Laverne drove a white truck, and he also knew about Laverne's stab wounds. So he'd called police on May 31st and told them what he knew. Mm. Police received a second tip about Laverne on June 4th. A worker at a used car lot in Lafayette called Don's Wholesale called police to tell them that Brandon Laverne had come in to buy a truck, telling them that his truck had been stolen from his sister's house in Houston. 
Several things just seem suspicious about Laverne to the employees at Don's Wholesale. They saw that he had multiple injuries. His arm was bandaged. He had a cut on his finger. And when a news report came on about Mickey Shunick, he started acting really nervous. When he'd given over his ID to purchase the truck, one employee noticed that he'd tried to alter his ID to hide the sex offender label on his Uh license. But apparently he hadn't been real successful. So she made a copy of the license and she gave it to the police. All these peeps of the week. Uh Like, yes, if something is suspicious, call call the police. Yeah, call it in. Because like that... Might not have stood up because it's like, I don't really know anything. I don't really, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, I just kind of saw yeah. some things that seemed off. And I might not think I should call the police and tell them about this. But this tip really helped them. Like, it, yeah. re- it really did. I mean, they, they wouldn't have gotten him just solely based on that. But it added to all this other stuff about him and just helped to kind of solidify that he was their guy. Police also learned that Brandon Laverne had called several different places to get quotes on replacing the entire leather interior of his truck. But he'd never actually made an appointment with any of them. So it seems like his first thought was to replace the upholstery in the truck. And when that was too expensive or whatever, he just decided to burn it, claim it was stolen, and collect the insurance money. And State Farm did actually pay him out in full for this quote unquote stolen truck, which seems weird to me because I thought you'd need a police report to get an insurance payout for a stolen vehicle. And I don't think he'd actually reported the truck stolen. I might have missed that, but I'd be surprised if he reported his white Chevy Z71 stolen and like police had never seen that, you know? Yeah. That's so weird to me, like how you got the payout then. I know. Like, I feel like it'd be so easy to just be like, well, my truck's stolen. My truck's on. I set it on fire. Go- yeah. Park it at your house and say it's stolen. I mean, I that know. would be insurance fraud, Mo Gabin. That would be. Wrong. I know, and I <laughs> never would because I follow the rules. But I just like <sighs> right. Of course, detectives spoke to Laverne's sister in Conroe, which is just outside of Houston, and she told them that she'd helped him burn the truck. She said that Laverne had told her that his truck had been involved in a shooting and he needed to get rid of it, and she didn't have the best relationship with her brother. She hadn't spoken to him for a really long time after he'd tried to rape her in 1999 when she was seven months pregnant. (gasps) But I guess, you know, family ties are complicated. And Laverne told her he'd forgive a $300 debt she owed if she helped him. To me, reading between the lines here, I feel like he'd probably been hassling her a lot. She was afraid of him. And so she figured if she did this for him, like, it would help him leave her alone. I hate, I hate every sentence that just came out of your mouth. She told detectives that she followed him around San Jacinto County until he found a spot to burn the truck. And he set it on fire and then ran to get in her car, telling her to tell police that he was asleep at her house the whole night. She didn't know anything about the Mickey Shunick case at the time. Hmm. So all these tips are just adding up and matching the story completely. The stab wounds from May 19th. The truck, the past offenses, the suspicious behavior. Police are sure they have their guy. Detectives met with Laverne's fiance, Barbara, who claimed she had no idea that Laverne had a side to him even capable of all of this. When they told her that they basically had irrefutable evidence that he had murdered Mickey Shunick, she practically had a panic attack. Hmm. They also spoke to her dad, John Falk. 
who told police that the truck Laverne had bought was identical to the one that he'd owned before, and that he'd told him, quote, I didn't know human blood smelt so bad. What? Why would he say that? I don't know. I'm not sure what the context of that quote was. It came up a lot in the articles I was reading. Maybe it was him talking about getting stabbed and bleeding in his truck. I don't know. But it definitely stood out as weird. Yeah. He also told several different stories about his stab wounds than what he'd told police at the hospital. He'd told the friend that drove him to the hospital that he'd been stabbed by two friends and he needed to go to a hospital in New Orleans so that his friends wouldn't get in trouble. This friend Mm -hmm. said he noticed a large amount of blood in the center console of the truck, but his shirt was clean and he had Band-Aids covering his wounds. He'd told doctors at a different office where he'd been treated that three men jumped him on Bourbon Street. Which is likely everybody. (laughs) On June 29th, they executed a search warrant of his home and found a wallet belonging to a woman named Madeline Amiller. She was a native woman whose current whereabouts are unknown, but I believe she'd lived with Laverne for a short time. I'm not 100% sure about that. They might have been talking about her brother. It was kind of unclear. Her brother had been putting money into her account to help her get through a rough time, but he said the account hadn't been accessed since at least April. And it doesn't seem like anyone is looking for her, but they found her wallet at his house. Wait, no one's looking for her? No. And I couldn't find anything more about her anywhere. Do we need to go look for her? Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Laverne was an offshore worker, so while he was offshore, police installed tracking equipment on his truck. And when he came back onshore on July 5th, 2012, police followed him, pulled him over on I-10, arrested him for altering his driver's license, and then brought him in for an interrogation. Again, you can only commit one crime at a time. Or else you're going to get arrested. <laughs> yeah. Like, I was just thinking, if like, your wait, registration no, you <laughs> is out of date, don't also have don't. drugs in your car. You know? <laughs> yeah. Only one at a time. One crime mm-hmm. at a time. <laughs> Solid legal and criminal advice from Kristen Williams. And you're welcome. That will be $300. Are you going to charge people now? <laughs> yeah. Great. Listen again, one crime at a time. <laughs> Oh, that's what I should have named this podcast. (laughs) One crime at a time. (laughs) Good Lord. Okay, so they brought him in for an interrogation. His attitude at being questioned was like, he was so annoyed. Like, you're trying to pin this on me. I had nothing to do with this girl's disappearance, blah, blah, (laughs) blah. They asked him where he was on the night of May 19th, and he said he didn't know. So police reminded him that he was in the hospital in New Orleans, and he said, oh, yeah. As soon as they started asking him about the Mickey Shunick case, he asked for a lawyer. After that, he was charged with the kidnapping and murder of Mickey Shunick. Damn right. But Laverne had information that the family wanted. They still didn't know where Mickey's body was. It hadn't been found in that exhaustive search, which meant the likelihood of finding it without Laverne's help was slim to none. So Detective Bajot went to the family to talk to them about a plea deal He wanted to offer Laverne. They would take the death penalty off the table and give him life in prison without parole if he gave them a full confession and told them where her body was. Mickey's family was devastated. 
all the hope they'd been grasping onto for months that Mickey could still be alive was officially crushed. They knew she was dead. When detectives asked them if they were okay with this deal, Nancy said she just wanted the body found. She had to know what had happened to Mickey. She couldn't stand the idea of spending the rest of her life just wondering. And Brandon Laverne agreed to the deal. He pleaded guilty to her murder, and he told them the whole story of what happened that night. So this is what happened that night. I know. But she is amazing. And... Oh, tell me, tell me. Yes. So he'd been driving around Lafayette that night calling escort services. He'd made 24 calls to escort services when he saw Mickey ride by on her bike. He said that he struck her bike by accident, but I think we all know that it was intentional. He threw the bike on the bed of the truck and then forced her into the cab. Mickey tried to get to her cell phone to call for help, and Laverne threatened her with his knife. So she grabbed a can of mace that she carried with her and sprayed it right in his face. She fought him off, and he was able to get the can of mace from her, but she was able to get the knife from him. She grabbed the knife and just started stabbing him over and over and over again. And he tried to grab the knife from her, which ended up slicing his hand up. He cut a bunch of tendons in his hands. Ew. Mickey is 5'1 and like 115 pounds. Laverne is a big guy, but she held her own against him for a long time. Eventually, he was able to get the knife back from her, and he stabbed her at least four times until she fell over. He thought she was dead, so he drove her to a secluded area 40 minutes away, planning to dump her body and escape. But suddenly, Mickey jumped up. She wasn't dead. She was still alive. And she had the knife again, and she stabbed him again in the chest. And then she turned. Yes, Mickey. And she tried to escape. But Laverne also had a gun with him. And he got it, Mm. and he shot her in the head, killing her instantly. And... I just like to know how a registered sex offender that spent eight years in prison on a felony was able to get his hands on a gun. Because if he hadn't had that gun, I think she would have gotten away. She was a fighter and she'd gotten the upper hand on him so many times. He needed that gun. This big guy needed that gun to kill that girl. Mickey, you're a boss. She is a boss. Yeah, why does he have that? Why does he have that? How does he have that? How did he get that? Because it's probably a hunting rifle. I think it was just, no, it was just a handgun, I think. I don't, I mean, it wasn't like a big, he didn't have like a giant gun in the cab of this truck. Charlie said that finding out how Mickey had actually died was really bad. But at the same time, she kicked his ass. She fought back. She almost killed him. She did everything that she should have done. Uh. That she should have never have to do. Like she sh- No. But because of all those injuries that she'd inflicted on him, she basically yeah. solved her own murder. She put into motion everything that happened after. Burning of the truck, the stab wounds that took him to the hospital, everything that led to him getting mm-hmm. caught. She'd left enough evidence behind that police were able to track it all back to him. Mickey, you're my peep of the week. I know. He was too injured to bury her like he'd planned at that spot. So instead, he drove back to his home to try and give himself first aid for all the stab wounds on him while her body was left in the passenger seat. He got rid of all his bloody clothes while he was at home. 
He told police that he'd buried her in a small community cemetery off Route 10 in Evangeline Parish, which was about 45 miles from where she was last seen. They would have never found her there. Her mom said, you know, he buried her in a cemetery. Genius. They never would have found her. I mean, honestly. They, yeah, they asked him how deep the body was buried, and he said not very deep. Since he was so injured, he hadn't really been able to dig very much, poor guy. At first, he'd just covered her with branches and debris, and then he'd gone back the next day to bury her. He told them there was probably just about a foot of cover over her. After he buried her, he went back home to come up with a plan. He destroyed more evidence and asked a friend who lived out of town if he could stay with him for a while. He dumped Mickey's bike beneath the bridge and disposed of the gun and the knife. And they were able to find her body in an overgrown area behind the old cemetery, and they identified it. But Mickey Shunick's murder is not all he pleaded guilty to. Part of the plea deal was that he also plead guilty to a second murder from 1999, the murder of Lisa Pate. Laverne had been the prime suspect in her murder at the time. They just weren't able to get an indictment against him. Lisa mm-hmm. Pate was a mother of two that was reported missing in July of 1999. She had a history of drug abuse, and in 1998, she'd been released from jail on a drug offense. So she was definitely in a vulnerable spot. Yeah. She'd met Laverne in June of that year where they spent several days together. And when she tried to return to Lafayette to see her kids, Laverne refused to let her leave. One night while he was sleeping, Lisa tried to steal his keys to leave, but he woke up and choked her with a plastic bag, killing her. How did they get that information from him? Did he just... I guess he admitted to it all to avoid the death penalty for both of these murders. In October of 1999, a couple was exploring the land behind a house they were renting, and they discovered human remains concealed under three wooden boards. A few months later, the remains were identified as Lisa Pate's. Her death was treated as a homicide, but due to the condition of the remains, they were unable to figure out the cause of death, and her murder would go unsolved for 13 years. Oh my gosh. Brandon Scott Laverne was sentenced to two life sentences and put away to rot forever. Good riddance. In the meantime, he's gone through a plethora of shenanigans. He's filed a bunch of appeals in an attempt to void his guilty pleas and get out of jail. He even tried a hunger strike as if anyone cared, but that only lasted four days. He tried to escape prison, but he didn't make it very far, and he was put on lockdown and lost all his privileges. See, that's the kind of person that, to me, the thought of them getting parole, I mean, I know he doesn't have it, or like getting out, Mm -hmm. that, that terrifies me like that Mm -hmm. person this person needs to be separated from society forever yeah yeah like the whole like reform like Mm -hmm. no i'm not buying it Mm -hmm. for him like he didn't know her Mm -mm. he ran her off her bike and was instantly going to rape and kill her Mm -hmm. that was it Mm -hmm. and did it with the other woman like Mm -hmm. i that is what terrifies me and that is why i'm not gonna want to walk the dog in 20 minutes outside by myself you know you got a dog (laughs) yeah and, and listen Chowder will bite your freaking legs off. Get some bear spray. I've heard bear spray is better than. (sighs) I just like don't. I don't want to have to do that. I don't want to have to. My hands full. Carry a phone. Carry spray. Carry a dog. You just put on your car keys. Carry my car key. You know. I know. Or your house keys. Yeah. 
I, they have clips. You can attach it to his leash, you know? Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Get within a five-foot radius <laughs> at night with Burks out here. He'd be kind of real territorial. Thank God. He's also filed a number of civil lawsuits against everyone from his own sister for saying he tried to sexually assault her to his former fiance's father, John Falk, for letting him spend money on a honeymoon and ring while calling police with tips that Laverne said were mostly lies. He's suing him for the $5,800 he spent under what he calls false pretenses. He's suing Dateline for using personal photos and not fact-checking their story enough. And he didn't like Are we that- about to get sued? No. And he, and he didn't like that, that they said he had a dark side. He didn't like that. Uh, and there's oh. tons more. I mean, he's suing the University of Louisiana for just investigating this crime. Like, it, it's all ridiculous. He's got, like, 17 lawsuits. I mean, how can you even do that? Like, don't you have to have money? Yeah, Doesn't you have to have money. To sp- you do. Yeah, yeah. You have to pay five hundred dollar or four hundred dollars per file to submit these, or submit for a hardship waiver and get approved for that. So these filings will never see the light of day unless he pays that. He's also continued to submit a bunch of requests, including a request to have a sword returned to him. Yeah, I don't think you're <laughs> going to get a sword. He's doing all this without legal representation. If you couldn't guess, I guess the guy's got mm. a lot of free time on his hands. And Mickey and Lisa aren't the only murders that Laverne may have committed. There's another missing girl, Allie Lowitzer, who was 15 years old when she went missing from her home in Texas in April of 2010. Her family believes that Brandon Laverne could be involved in her murder as well. There was a white truck similar to Laverne's that was seen trying to lure Allie in on one of the side streets from where she went missing. And tips that came in included pieces of a license plate that matched those on a truck Laverne owned at the time. And then there's also Madeline Allmiller, who, as far as I could find, has never been found. Her ID was found in his house. You know, it's possible there's even more that we don't know of, especially if he's using escorts. Like, how many sex workers? Yeah. That, you know? (sighs) People aren't looking for them sometimes. Right. Charlie said that Mickey Shunick was a warrior and that if it wasn't for her, their community never would have been able to bring down a dangerous man that harmed multiple people. If not for Mickey's valiant fight, it's possible that Brandon Scott Laverne would be free right now to do this to other people. Ew. Nancy said this, and I wanted to include it because I just think it's so sweet and inspiring. She said, Mickey refused to be a victim. My courageous child faced down a monster. Now I think I can face monsters too. And so can you. Hmm. <sighs> yeah. I watched a video on the website that Mickey's family ran about her disappearance. They had tons of information. And, and they had this video that was from a community celebration honoring Mickey that was held in September of 2012, so after the crime had been solved, where friends and family and community members and search and rescue workers came and spoke about Mickey. And it was so clear that her legacy that she left behind was this one of community. That she was able to unite so many people that came together to help, to try and make a difference. She showed them what the world really is. That it's not all darkness and monsters. That it's mostly good people trying to do the right thing for other people. You know, people came together that did not know each other, that did not know Mickey, and they forged 
new friendships and relationships, all because Mickey brought them together. God. Because she'd lived her life in a way that was beautiful and loving and kind. But they said she was also opinionated and she spoke her mind and she was honest and she was strong and giving and resilient and humble and shy. And if she didn't like you, you'd know it. And if she did (laughs) like you, you were overjoyed. And they said Mickey Shunek was the golden-haired girl who never gave up. Oh. And that's the story of her murder. (sighs) Ugh. But also so much more about her and her life, you know? <sighs> yeah. I just, like, I don't know. Yeah. I just felt like through all these people, like, I got to know her. And I was just like, this son of a bitch, like, for absolutely no reason, she crossed your path for a second and she died because of it. Like, right? God, it's just, it's literally one of those things where, like, if she had left five minutes earlier or five minutes later. Yeah. She would never have even known she came that close, you know? Right. We'll think about how that happens. Yeah. If you weren't such a piece of shit, you know? If you weren't such a piece of shit. And he's in jail forever, which is fabulous because he's one of the most dangerous people I've read about. Yeah. That's so scary. But just in like the most ugh way. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, like he got lucky he had that gun. Yeah. She was <laughs> she was kicking his ass. ass. <laughs> yeah. God. She got him good. And one of the articles said that his wounds were not life threatening and so they were gonna release him from the hospital. Another article said his wounds were life threatening. So He I don't couldn't know. dig, okay? <laughs> like he couldn't dig. His hands are all messed up. He cut the tendons in them. She got him in the chest, in the arm. Freaking asshole. Yes. (sighs) All right. Was there a a foundation or you said the website you wanted to link or what was the website? No, it was just like the it's MickeyShunick.com. It's just like this website that that her family maintained for her disappearance. I got a lot of information there, but they had that video. It's like a 30 minute video. I watched the whole thing Hmm. of just people like coming in and speaking about her and about, you know, how she touched their lives. And yeah. I don't know. After I watched that video, I was just, I just felt like I knew her. I felt close to her. And right. It just sucked. (laughs) Like she just seemed, you know, like she should be here. Yeah, she should. And he should not. And then the world would be better, you know. Mm -hmm. Anyways, I feel like we should do like palate cleansers at the end, you know, like. (laughs) No, I think you got to let the people sit in it. (laughs) Just sitting in it. All right. Well, how about shout outs? We got any shout outs? You just cried. You want a shout out? Yeah, I could do some shout outs. Yeah, I need okay. to do some shout outs. Get me in a better mood. <laughs> Palette cleanser. You know, it's shout out time. Shout out time. We're doing shout outs as a hey, palette cleanser how do for you, Kristen. How do you get a shout out, Mogab? How do these fine folks get their shout outs? You got to buy me a Venti Starbucks. <laughs> You got to sign up for the Patreon at the $5 level and above. And then you got to fill out the form on the Patreon that tells us how to say your name, what name you'd like us to use, all that good stuff. And so here are our shout outs for this episode. Do you want to go first? Here are our lucky people. Ooh. 
first, Sheridan Burns. Thanks, Thank Sheridan you so much, Sheridan. Burns. Next up, best. thank you so much to Michelle Romine, who also just got married. Congratulations, Michelle. Oh, so not romaine lettuce. No. I would have had that wrong. Michelle, congrats. Tell me how it is, girl. <laughs> yeah. Any tips for MoGab? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not on wed- wedding TikTok. I just don't go there. <laughs> and another major thanks to Jennifer Rittenhouse. Jennifer Rittenhouse. Oh, I like that name. Rittenhouse. Rittenhouse. And last but not least, thanks to Sarah and Squish. Do you remember Squish? We read about, we either got an email or it was in a review. Remember? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I'll have to go back and read the email, the review. Oh, yeah. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks, Sarah and Squish. And Squish. And squish. I hope you have a great day after this. Everybody. <laughs> thank you for being here today. Thank, thank you for being here today. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. And if you would like to support the podcast on social media, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, um, sometimes Twitter, at CreepersPod. (laughs) I'm getting there. Join our discussion group. We have so much fun in there. That's the True Crime Creepers Facebook discussion group. And, uh, you know, if you want to join the Patreon, that's patreon.com slash truecrimecreepers. That link is in the show notes. And um, be sure to subscribe so you can... Be notified as soon as the next episode drops when I'll tell MoGab another one of these stories. Bye, peeps and creeps.